Look at these three words written larger than the rest with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, We the people. Welcome to the LexRex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Truschel, lead writer for the LexRex Institute. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush, president of the LexRex Institute and a practicing constitutional attorney, although I will not be speaking in a capacity as an attorney today. Before we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the LexRex Institute. If you'd like to learn more about the LexRex Institute, you can visit us online at www.lexrex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X dot org. Oh, I think I was supposed to say something about how we're a constitutional advocacy nonprofit before that. Yeah. Also, I don't think uh, you really need the www anymore, but... Well, it's still on the World Wide Web. That's true. I'm also not sure I've heard anyone call it that for... I guess we're always probably on the about, World Wide Web now, aren't we? Probably about 16, 17 years. Yeah, that's true. You know, almost everything is... Uh, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is you, Ludditism is correct. Everyone should just get rid of all your devices and go live in the woods or something. It's the only way to keep the NSA from spying on you. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, the Actually, bulk data collection work. was ruled unconstitutional in 2020. That's, I a, remember, that's a largely ignored opinion. That's a good because point. There was something else that was bigger news going on at the time, but well, yeah. they're no longer collecting your personal data. That's, well, at least they say they're not. And if yeah, they do use it against you, they have to disclose the manner in which data was obtained. We could get into that in a future episode. It's not on our schedule today. No. I just thought that, you know, it's a fun fact. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Please don't let that make you be any more lax in your online activities, though. You still want to make sure that you're not just doing things out in the open so that... Uh, Russians or whoever else get a hold of your data. That's not great. You don't want that. And now that I'm giving advice, let me just make it clear that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice. It may constitute tech advice, but neither of us has any expertise in that, so you probably shouldn't listen to that either. And when it comes to legal advice, as we've mentioned many times before, you don't want to use anything you hear in a podcast in the court of law. That's just a mistake. Yeah. Think of this as entertainment instead really dull well it's educational it's just not advice <laughs> yeah <laughs> you can learn about constitutional rights just not yeah. your constitutional rights yeah a hypothetical person's <laughs> hypothetical constitutional That's, rights the definition of what what is and is not legal advice legally speaking is well it may not make the most intuitive sense but it doesn't mean that what we're saying is untrue. Just to right. <laughs> just so you should not try to apply it to your personal situation without consulting with an attorney. Correct. Yep. Anyway. And if you do want to consult with an attorney, well, give us a call. That's 562-264-5515. Again, 562-264-5515. Can I just say, I really appreciate the smoothness and the naturalness of your plugs. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a... You know, you only learn this skill after seven weeks of doing podcasts. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of hypothetical people with hypothetical rights, let's go to the first item on our agenda, which is the story Putative of, people would be the way that we refer to that legally. Putative persons. Happy the elephant. Um, is happy the elephant a putative person? Well, the New York... Well, technically not the New York Supreme Court, because New York is a weird state where the Supreme Court is not their highest court. 
But that's actually, I, you know, that's probably one of the best educational points we've made on this program. <laughs> and I want to make sure people are fully aware of this. All the time, you'll see in the news something reported as New York Supreme Court decides X, Y, Z. Yeah. That's the lower court in New yeah. York. I actually get into that in a, a video called how a case gets to the Supreme Court. It's one of our Ask an Attorney videos. You can find that on our YouTube channel. That's Lex Rex Institute on YouTube, which is also on the World Wide Web, David. Uh, but, but, but anyway, that's their lower court. There's a million of those in that state. Well, not a million, but there's a lot of those in that state. Yeah. Their, anyway. Their Supreme Court, you know, their higher court's called their Court of Appeals. So right. was this happy the elephant issue actually heard in their higher court or was it heard in their Supreme Court? It was heard in the higher court, the Court of Appeals. So this was okay. New York's highest and, state And this court. is this is an issue we've talked about before on this podcast, right? Maybe not on the podcast. We've definitely... Actually, no, 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 we did. It was it was in our hot take segment a while ago. Now yeah, it's graduated. you asked me about habeas corpus for elephants, and I, I yeah. said something about, well, wouldn't we it be habeas yeah. pachydermis or something <laughs> like that? Well, no, it wouldn't, because corpus doesn't mean human or person. It means body, and elephants have bodies. But that's so then anyway. you're of the opinion that elephants do have habeas corpus rights. No, that's a different question entirely. <laughs> but <laughs> but etymologically anyway, speaking, they, yeah, which is they, different from legally speaking. Yes. Anyway, we said at the time or rather you said at the time in answer to my question that we couldn't know yet whether or not elephants were entitled to habeas corpus rights. I don't think that's entirely a fair repetition <laughs> of my answer on that. I think <laughs> I think what I said was that it is absurd to suggest that an elephant would have habeas corpus rights, but you know, we don't we, we can't be certain about whether or yeah. not they would well, without doing a thorough review of the case law behind habeas corpus. We couldn't give a definitive answer yet. And technically we still can't because, you know, New York's decisions are not binding necessarily on the entire yeah, court opinions are the but, evidence of law as we got into in one of our videos you know, watch all of them yeah. but uh, <laughs> just watch they, they all are not of our law videos. itself that's actually i think that was last week's podcast we talked about with the judicial philosophies uh sort of not, yeah, not an opinion of the court wording. is evidence of law the actual yeah. law is what underlies that opinion so that's yeah. but anyway we certainly have brought up happy the elephant before but to recap Happy the Elephant is an elephant living in the Brooklyn Zoo. Apparently an Asian elephant, not an African elephant. I learned that today. There are very but, few African elephants in zoos, I believe. Interesting. I, I assumed it was the other way around. but no, The Asian know, elephants are smaller. They're easier to domesticate. I think they're a lot more common in captivity. That makes sense. Anyway, an organization called, I believe, the Non-Human Rights Project. I wouldn't swear to that. I can confirm. But... Hmm. Anyway. So usually we refer to human rights. These are non-human rights. Yes, the Non-Human Rights Project, right. I've just confirmed that's the name of it, has submitted numerous petitions over the years for various animals in captivity. And in this case, they were... And so just to be clear, habeas corpus means show, show me the body, basically. Yeah. And well, what habeas we'll corpus refers to is the right to hear, if you're going to be held in detention, it's the right to hear the charges made against you so that you know why you are being held. Yeah, and so that the court can confirm that you're not just keeping someone in jail for no reason indefinitely. Right. They, they are arguing this is what has been done with perhaps the inaptly named Happy the Elephant. Yeah, so Happy the Elephant, who, and, you know, they, they make a, a big deal about the fact that Happy... Used to live with other elephants, but, you know, some died, some were moved, I think. And apparently one 
she just does not get along with, so they have to separate them. Um, that seems to me to be of no relevance to the habeas corpus I, issue. I, I happen to agree, but anyway... Whether or not you are detained in favorable conditions right. is utterly irrelevant to the habeas corpus question. It's relevant to animal welfare, certainly, right. but you know, I would argue that habeas corpus is also irrelevant to animal welfare, so... Well, and that's that's basically yeah. what the court said, and we'll get it deeper into that in a second. But just to finish the thought, basically, this this organization is saying that keeping an elephant in a zoo is the same as keeping a person in a prison indefinitely without a charge. In which case, the most relevant consideration is whether or not they have friends or like their cellmate. I think you know that was arguably they, so. More no, clear, they're not being consistent here. They're saying it's no. analogous to a human being kept in jail or prison. And then they're talking about things that are utterly irrelevant to that. Yeah, I think they're trying to, you know, play to the audience a bit, tug on some heartstrings. And, you know, if I may be... I'm just saying it's disingenuous. Well, oh, for sure. And if I may be cynical, I suspect that this organization probably doesn't really ever expect to win one of these cases, but they probably do expect to make a lot of people read about it and feel bad and want to... Get donations. Well, and, and try to make zoos stop keeping animals in captivity would be my suspicion. But... Mm. Anyway, so well, the, I can't say I'm in favor of that. I like the zoo. Anyway, we're, we're getting off the track here. <laughs> New York's highest court <laughs> ruled against this animal rights advocacy group. And, you know, among Gee, other things, among other things, they said, you know, hey, we, we hear you that elephants are smart and they have, you know, complex emotions and psychology and stuff. That's all fine. But that doesn't that was never them, the issue of habeas that corpus. That doesn't make them a person. <laughs> <It was> never. <laughs> right. <laughs> But they, and you know, they also, this was an interesting point, and we'll talk a bit, a bit about their reasoning in a second. But one of the things that they cited, which I thought was interesting, was that there is no precedent, at least according to them, and you know, as far as I know, it sounds right, no precedent for someone filing a habeas corpus petition, not in order to be released from being incarcerated, but just to be transferred to better incarceration, which is actually what they were trying to Wait, do. Wait, was that the relief they requested? They wanted Happy the Elephant to be moved to a more fitting sanctuary. So, that, still in captivity. Habeas corpus was totally the wrong cause to... Death. So the, the court okay, agreed. So, the court so, agreed. So, all right. Um, but, you know, so, sometimes my clients ask me to do real wacky stuff that just shows sort of an ignorance about how the law works. I don't do those things. You know, I, I owe a basic duty to the law. <laughs> I owe a duty to my clients to be a zealous advocate, but I also owe a duty. You know, there's a reason they've hired a lawyer is because they're supposed to know more about the law. Yeah. I'm surprised that this group managed to get their attorneys to bring well, that suit. Anyway, so there was that. You and, should just you know, release him onto the streets in New York. You know, that's, 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 what, <laughs> that's what you would do if a human brought a habeas corpus claim. But I think that they know that would show the absurdity of the claim. Yeah. So I, they didn't I, ask for that. I did have, you know, some fun just picturing what this would look like. You know, they they let the elephant out of the zoo. They return its belongings to it in a Ziploc baggie like you get when you leave jail. <laughs> and it yeah, I, I was imagining of... the elephant at an arraignment because habeas corpus has to do with your having the charges against you heard. So I was imagining, yeah. you know, one of the old time judges maybe has the wig on sitting behind the, the bench. And then there's, you know, the elephant's attorneys that are very typical attorneys. They're wearing their dark suits. And then you got an elephant that's sitting right behind the bar just waiting to hear the charges against him. Yeah. And maybe the trunk is cuffed to the to the legs. And, <laughs> yeah. And yes. I don't, know, I don't know what the charges against this elephant would be other than just 
I guess, being an elephant. That's um, not really but, a charge. Right, but that's, you know, that's presumably sort of the basic reason why the elephant is in captivity. Yeah. Well, what they're trying to say is there are no charges against this elephant. That's why it right. should be released. But that's, again, that's an argument for releasing it. That's not an argument yeah. for giving it better detention. Yeah. Last week, we talked about judicial philosophies. That was sort of the main topic of the podcast. We talked about one idea that, you know, you called consequentialism. And, you know, I think people can probably figure out what that means. You know, thinking about law in terms of its consequences and letting that guide your reading of the law. I think part of the court's opinion wasn't very consequentialist. But one thing certainly well, we mentioned that, that typically somebody will have more than one of those legal philosophies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But certainly one thing that they said I thought was textbook consequentialist, and so I'll just read it to you. The court noted that applying this logic, applying habeas corpus rights to animals, would, quote, have an enormous destabilizing impact on modern society, among other things, and I'm no longer quoting, but among other things because it would raise some serious questions about people owning pets. <laughs> would, would have an enormous destabilizing impact yeah. on modern society. Yeah. You know, that's a, I'm not laughing, but that's a very comedic way of stating that. <laughs> it's, I think, I, I think on Facebook, we said that it was a candidate for understatement of the year. Yeah, um, that's, but no, he's right. Like, if we just acknowledge at this point that animals have habeas corpus rights. The effects are going to be monumental. I mean, yeah. elephantine, you might even say. <laughs> you, you might, if you were so inclined, I would not. Perhaps mammoth in proportion. Yeah, sure. Thank you. But, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I, that was I uncalled for. <laughs> I had in middle school. I remember they gave us these planners one year that you know it was like an agenda notebook. It had spots for you to write your homework each day and that sort of thing, keep track. But I remember the the bottom corner of each page had a little fun fact, sort of like you would get on a cap on a sample. Yeah, I think ball. we had the same ones. I remember that. But I remember one noting that there were roughly as many chickens in the world as human beings. And I, I remember that same one. That was <laughs> that was when I was in eighth grade. I think it might have been eighth grade for me as well. So maybe the same yeah, manufacturer that was, made these. We had the same planner. Even though we were on opposite coasts at the time. Yes, but united you know. by the same planner, apparently. <laughs> but anyway, assuming there's an equal proportion of chickens to humans in the U.S., we're suddenly going to get... 350 million habeas corpus petitions to let the chickens free from the factory farms. Well, there's going to be a limited number of animal rights attorneys that can bring those petitions, David. This is really just a way of drumming up work for those lawyers. Are you saying that the chickens couldn't file for themselves? And if so, why? They're going to file prose? Yeah. What, they're going to file chicken scratches? Sure. Why not? They're, they're people, according to the non-human rights project. Yeah, oh, I don't know that they are because remember it was based Actually, on the yeah. emotional complexity and Yeah, that's true. I th I think the only thing is I think you'd have to have a separate hearing for every one of these animals to determine whether or not it surpassed. And then that's why, you know, that's why the effect of recognizing habeas corpus rights for elephants has a profound destabilizing impact on society. Yeah. Is because it, it is de facto creating this threshold where animals are sufficiently advanced that we're going to consider them as endowed with human rights. Yeah. That's a very dangerous prospect. Yeah. And, you know, it also, I, I think there's a certain troubling element there, too. The only two kinds of animals I know for sure, based on what I've read about this group, that they've tried to make this argument for are apes, I think, at least chimps. But anyway, so I know for sure they've, they've talked about apes and elephants. 
But then, you know, the question then becomes how intelligent, how complex emotionally, socially, et cetera, does an animal have to be before it qualifies? And then that, you know, are we and suddenly saying And then you're that, measuring, or whether even intelligence is, is the proper indicator of whether or not somebody is endowed with rights. Right, exactly. Because then what becomes of someone who's, you know, comatose or something? Well, and that, that became, for a while in the early 20th century, there were a lot of folks who claimed that rights were contingent upon people's intellect. And yep. you got some really bad stuff out of that, like eugenics or, or trying to deprive people who are below a certain mental threshold of things like parenthood. Right. They're saying they couldn't keep their kids. Their kids would be taken away. It's a Supreme Court case on that. Yep. And Supreme Court ruled you know, that being a parent, having kids, is a fundamental right. It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. That's not what indicates whether or not you're endowed with rights. It's a, very clear in the Declaration of Independence. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights. It's not endowed by our intelligence with those things. And yeah. you know, that's why you can see if we were to recognize that these rights exist for elephants, that'd be a pretty big blow yeah. to the structure of our society. Yeah. So anyway, turns out there's pretty good reasons not to apply human rights to animals and I guess well, they're not humans, for we, one. Yeah, we should be glad that New York recognized that. And, you know, hopefully other states and the federal government will continue to do the same. So today we've got Zachary Jones with us, a constitutional attorney and soon-to-be family rights advocate. Zach, would you tell us about that? Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me on the program. I'm excited to be on the podcast. Of course. Thank um, you for being here. Yeah. yeah, thank you. I'm a California attorney currently studying for the Arizona Bar in preparation for a position with their attorney general's office in the Division of Child and Family Protection. That's important work. Really important work. Glad you're doing that. Yeah, looking forward to it. Well, Zach has recently written for LexRex.org an article about the 17th Amendment, and that's an amendment that Zach is, I think this is probably fair to your position, Zach, that Zach is fairly critical of. And <laughs> Just as if yeah. you know about the Lex Rex Institute, we're critics of that one as well. In general, we are constitutional advocates, and we'll absolutely strive to uphold the Constitution as written, but where we see that something might do some damage to the Constitution as it was originally structured and envisioned by its framers, well, We'll be critical of that. So Zach has written an excellent article. You can check it out on LexRex.org. David, what's the title of that article? Well, <laughs> I should have been prepared for this, I guess. I believe it was it's, Federalism, the Founding, and the seven, Folly of the 17th Amendment. Federalism, the Founding, and the Folly of the 17th Amendment. It's an excellent article. It goes into the entire history behind why we have the 17th Amendment, why that contradicts the original structure and vision the founders had, and then sort of gives a path forward for us. We highly recommend that. Please check that out if you get a chance. But we're going to talk to you guys briefly. We're going to have a conversation with Zach about that article. So, Zach, for those of our listeners who are not aware, what is the 17th Amendment? Yeah, so the 17th Amendment, we talk about as constitutional originalists, we care about the structure of the Constitution, and certainly uh, mm -hmm. Article 5 gives the ability of the people and the future generations to enact constitutional amendments. Uh, there's no argument mm -hmm. that that procedure was followed to enact the 17th Amendment. It's a valid right. amendment. It's been in effect for over 100 years. Our criticism, my criticism of it, is not on its enactment, but more on its structure and the effect it's actually had on the original structure of the Constitution. So for those who are unacquainted, the 17th Amendment 
was the direct election of senators under the original design of the Constitution. The state legislatures picked their senators, and there was actually no provision for how that was done. Either most states ended up doing it by majority vote of their state legislatures. But after the 17th Amendment's ratification in 1913, that process switched to direct election by the people of the states thereof and not their state legislatures. Okay. So I know under the, actually still under the Constitution, but especially under the Constitution as originally envisioned, when the Constitution refers to the authority of a state, it usually means that state's legislature. So, Zach, is it fair to say that originally states pretty much got to pick the manner in which they were going to elect their senators? Yeah, that's correct. It's much like the Electoral College provisions in the original design of the Constitution. The framers were very careful in drawing their compromise at the Philadelphia Convention in 1787. They needed to, on the one hand, keep very independent political units together, and on the other hand, create a federal union. Uh, so in much the same way that the Electoral College was a compromise giving the states the ability to pick electors for president, the original design of the Senate gave much leeway to the state legislatures to pick who their senators would be. So, so then the 17th Amendment sort of creates a one-size-fits-all where every state's now required to have majority vote of the actual, the people of that state, the, the, the voting that, populace. That's correct. That's correct okay. Yes. Now, what, what's wrong with that? Why don't we want that one-size-fits-all? Isn't it sort of unnecessarily complicated the old way? I believe I have a line in the article that uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> Basically, the progressive movement of the early 1900s was very heavily driven by a desire for direct popular control. You see this democracy. especially in a lot of... Yeah, democracy, direct democracy. Yeah. You see this in a lot of Western states. That's what we states. love that. Uh, <laughs> we do. We want more democracy depending, in this country. So are, are you, are you trying to tell we? us that more democracy is a bad thing? It depends. A very lawyerly answer. Uh, <laughs> it depends on the arena and it depends on the level of government. You know, just because a system of government is more directly democratic does not necessarily make it better. I think right. that was the oversight of the progressive era in general. And there's a line to that effect in the article, I believe, as well. Yeah, so direct election of senators is not ideal because it essentially inverts the relationship of the houses in Congress. Uh, the framers carefully developed a system where federal policy would be decided with an equal say to the state legislatures and to the people directly. How did that work? It well, the Senate was comprised of two senators chosen by the state legislatures of each okay. state. Essentially, the senators were to be ambassadors to a central federal body to represent the interests of the state legislatures. And then the House was chosen directly by the people of the several states. Yeah, that's part of bicameralism, right? Is you, you yeah, have two exactly. things go through two steps because you want to make sure that both kinds of interests, both the interests mm -hmm. of the state and the interests of the people, are respected. Yeah, this is in direct contravention. I, I mentioned something in the article about we have a federal system as opposed to a unitary system. Uh, a lot of the Western European democracies, uh, France, Britain, and even Canada, most of the parliamentary systems are what we call a unitary system of government, mm -hmm. where the central government is just the government. There is no other co-sovereign. And that's not the system we have under the Constitution of the United States. The state governments share their sovereignty with the federal government, and the original design of the Senate and the House working both as an adversarial relationship against each other, but also for compromise and cooperation, was designed deliberately to produce national federal policy that both the people 
and the people in the states through their state legislatures would agree on. Right. Well, and that's, you know, I think that's the part that's so easily overlooked in all of this is prior to the ratification of the 17th Amendment, if Massachusetts thought that the best way to appoint a senator was for the state legislature to call, you know, a plebiscite and have the people come out and vote and then, you know, voice their opinion to the state legislature. And then the legislature said that we're going to cast our vote for senator along the same lines as the people of this state have voted. They could do that. Yeah. What the 17th Amendment does is it restricts all these states to one option. So, you know, the goal was to be more democratic. It ends up being a lot less democratic because it deprives Mm -hmm. the people of the ability to pick the method of appointing their senator, which previously they could do via the state legislature. Yeah, do you say that's accurate? Or yeah, that's an excellent distinction. It's very, it's very interesting. Just, just how the swap of one word changed so much. Because under the original design of the Senate, it said that the two senators should be chosen by the state legislatures thereof, and all it did, all the Seventeenth Amendment did, was just flip that, chosen by the Mm -hmm. people thereof instead of the legislatures thereof and that has just so, made all the difference to quote Robert Frost. A couple of questions yeah. I, I'm going to ask. You know, first, first one, would you say that the 17th Amendment sort of, you, you talked about the federal structure of government earlier, would you say the 17th Amendment erodes that federal structure or would you say just that it makes the states less involved in the national government? Or would you say those are the same thing? I think it's a both and. No, those are different concepts, but I think it's a both and. There's certainly you, you a could say you know federalism is strengthened by keeping the federal government in its sphere and the state governments in their sphere, and you know mm-hmm. never the two shall mix. Yeah, I don't absolutely. know that that's an argument we'd want to make, but you know somebody could argue that. Yeah, you <laughs> probably <could>. not. I think. <laughs> yeah, I probably think not. It's, but <laughs> yeah, I think there's definitely there is something to be said for the original design of the Constitution and its careful siloing of enumerated and limited powers to the federal government and broad general police powers to the state governments. And, you know, the 17th Amendment has been a pretty, uh, you know, not very well talked about, but a very driving force and a culprit behind the undoing of that careful cabining of power. Now we have a situation Mm. where the federal government is even though on paper or the parchment of the Constitution, it is still limited and enumerated by Article One, Section 8, in the aftermath of the states not having direct representation as state legislatures in federal policy, we now have more of a leviathan, a central government that it looks a lot more like a unitary state, like a Paris or a London, where the state capitals, the state legislatures, don't actually enact as much policy as they were designed to and envisioned that they would do uh, under the original design of the Constitution. And yeah, I mean, I think our federal system as a whole suffers for that because then our federal legislature is pressured into creating one-size-fits-all solutions for an incredibly large and diverse and pluralistic nation, which, you know, there really aren't one-size-fits-all solutions, except for the enumerated powers in Article 1, Section 8. Those are the ones that right. generally we should have one national policy for. Well, and we, we've definitely seen that. You know, we've seen a decline of interest, the people's interest in matters of, of state politics and certainly an increase in focus on national politics. You know, we just had a yes. state election in California and half of the half of the people who were on the ballot were names I'd never heard before. 
They're just not <laughs> ones that are really in the news. Uh, yes. And that's, that's as somebody who's fairly politically engaged. And I think certainly, too, you know, we've seen an increase in one-size-fits-all options. My question is, and I, I think that you could probably provide lots of examples of this, but what areas have you really seen sort of a concrete effect of this structural change to our government? Uh, what's, you know, I know this is kind of a hypothetical that maybe you can't answer, but in what ways is our republic in 2022 different because this amendment is in place? It's different primarily in that, in its structure. You know, I don't think the framers, it's very interesting to go back and read the anti-federalist papers on this point. We live under a federal system. The federalists won. We have the constitution that we have with a strong central government. But a lot of the anti-federalists made very cogent and prescient points about coalescence of power and the danger of one central government overriding the ability of states to do their own thing and still remain one cohesive political unit. And it's funny because those warnings didn't turn out to be correct about the original constitution, but then through the amendment process, which was one that the anti-federalists insisted upon, we do end up getting exactly the things that they feared. I I don't think they anticipated at the time that the states would ever voluntarily diminish their own power, which is what ended up happening in the 17th Amendment. How how did that, I know that was part of the progressive era thing, you know, you talk about William Jennings Bryan in your article, and that's Mm -hmm. obviously a hugely important figure in Mm -hmm. progressivism, but you know, how how did they do that? How did they convince the state legislatures to diminish their own power? Well, you have to remember this was also taking place in living memory of the Civil War. So a lot of this was a a tug of war and kind of, you know, I think it's Randy Barnett has a book. What what year was the 17th Amendment passed? You ratified? The 17th Amendment was 1913, and the Reconstruction Amendments were in like 1868, you know, that kind of. So we're really only talking about 50 years. There are people still alive who remember the trauma of a national civil war. And there are people, legal scholars currently, who kind of view the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments as the quote-unquote second founding. The idea that the Mm -hmm. fundamental structure of the United States was reoriented after the Civil War. Um, Right. You you can even see it in corpus linguistics. People would talk about the United States as a plural prior to the 1860s. The United States are a nice place to live. The United States will pursue Mm -hmm. a policy of X, Y, Z. And after the Civil War, it becomes the United States is. So part of it is that. I think that the American political imagination kind of viewed itself as one unit to try to heal from the trauma of the Civil War. But we're right. talking 50, 60 and part, years. Part of it, too, is you had the Industrial Revolution going on. Yeah. You had trains yeah. that were made travel mm-hmm. between different states a lot easier. You had the telegraph, mm-hmm. telephone a few years after that. Mm-hmm. Things certainly seemed a lot more connected, but... Mm-hmm. You know, as we know, things are even more connected today. That does not destroy regional diversity or the fact that people have very different needs in very in different yeah, places. But I, I think yeah, it's absolutely. also worth um, worth pointing out that the 19th century into the 20th century is also just in the Western world in general a time where national unity and the concept of national yeah. cultures were on the rise. You see that you know the the European mm-hmm. revolutions of 1848 people trying to sort of dissolve what they saw as these sort of old parochial divisions into, you know, like in Germany, you know, you had dozens of different political entities that existed. The Second Reich, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. If, uh, not, the not precursor yet, not, of the famous Third Reich. Not until 1871. <laughs> but, 
you know, people sort of promoting this idea of national unity, national togetherness, one government for one people right. as sort of the wave of the future. So I guess what I'm saying is, didn't the amend- the 17th Amendment just sort of make us more trendy and European? Uh, yes, Boy, that's but- a that's a real damning criticism. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I think Boy. it was just we were just trying to keep up with the Joneses of Europe, um, you know, be a little more fashionable. And that's, that's quite right. possible. I mean, I think that cosmopolitan influence was definitely part of it. But you got to remember also, just because things Europe does things a certain way doesn't mean that's the way America does things. We have to remember, <laughs> or uh, the way America should do things, or necessarily even the way Europe sh- Europe should do things, yeah. uh, considering the way that those Reichs turned out. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's a, not necessarily a pattern that we want to follow. An excellent point to draw a comparison here to Paris in 1789. You know, France is currently on its fifth constitution. A small small error unitary republic like France is currently on its fifth system of government in the same amount of time that we're on one is a testament to the safety valve, the kind of pressure release ability, especially that horizontal federalism gives. Because in a huge, pluralistic, diverse nation, uh, the state governments are an organ for having some of that pluralistic diversity and not having a one-size-fits-all national solution. That was one of the sections I really loved in your article, too, that you, you, you cite a statistic at one point saying the average constitution lasts about 17 years. That's correct. So we've exceeded yeah. that average by a factor of, what what is it at this point, like 26, More than 27? Uh, the constitution is 233. <laughs> yeah. I guess, sorry, I'm, I'm doing my... Don't ever trust a lawyer with math, but, <laughs> but uh, somewhere between. Yeah, 10 I mean and that's a, that's a striking thing. Is constitutions, societies, governments in particular are tend to be very short lived in the history of the human race. They tend not to be stable unless they have structures in place that make them stable. And you know, I think it's really a testament to our constitutional republic how much damage it can take, and yeah. still continue to. Yeah. yeah, EA government. We've we've brought this up before, but there's a trend for countries establishing new constitutions to make them very effusive and you know highly detailed, lots of language in them. That turns out to mostly be not very practically oriented. And I think as a consequence, yeah, beautiful very, language about human rights and the yeah. inherent dignity of man, and, and very yeah. few actual structures to make sure that that dignity isn't stripped. Yeah, Go read so the I Constitution think... of North Korea sometime. It is amazing <laughs> in what it promises its people. Yeah. But the, deliverance, <laughs> yeah. the delivery of the thing really matters in structure and internal checks and balances. Well, that's um, what yeah. Justice Scalia used to talk about. He said, look at the, the Soviet Union's Bill of Rights. They have a much better Bill of Rights than we do. You know, yeah. The way he said it was great because Scalia mm-hmm. was always very outspoken. Uh, but, yeah. but, you know, They had a much better, better Bill of Rights than we did. And, and that never guaranteed liberty there and it doesn't guarantee liberty here yeah. what guarantees our liberty is the structures and yeah. sort of what you're yeah. saying zach and i think you're absolutely right in your article is that the 17th amendment is a huge blow to that structure mm-hmm. that's correct it takes out a key part of our federalism both vertically and horizontally and it's the linchpin of the state governments um, so what do we do about it we repeal the 17th Amendment, <laughs> short of that. Do you think that's viable in the modern political context? Ah, uh, man, I, I wish it would be. I don't I don't know how we get from here to there. Uh, you know, a, a, a constitutional amendment takes at least 34 state legislatures to propose and 38 to adopt uh, three quarters of the states thereof. So, you know, it's going to take a lot of 
talk about these sorts of things, it's going to take a revival of oh, yeah. interest in the structural federalism that makes the American constitutional republic unique among the nations mm-hmm. of the earth. And um, yeah, I hope we see that. I hope I can well, have it. you ever heard the story of how the 27th Amendment was ratified? Oh yeah, it started as a like a law school or college project. No, right? I, I think Someone it was realized a high school you... project originally. <laughs> might might have been college, might have been undergrad, but not somebody yeah. with a great deal of expertise. I mean, we won't get into the whole story today, but it's one that's worth telling on a future episode, David. If you want to make a note of that, it's, it's fair, literally yeah. it's a guy who wrote an essay in school about this unratified amendment that James Madison had written way back when the Constitution was originally written. And for whatever reason, it didn't get ratified. A few states had approved it. Other states had not. I think there were, you know, it had to reach a certain threshold because it was still, you know, tabled at that point. It hadn't been withdrawn. Mm -hmm. I don't know that there is a process to withdraw an amendment. So if you could get additional states to ratify that, then it would become an amendment. It'd be properly ratified and it'd be part of the Constitution. Uh, this guy wrote an article about this or, or an essay about this for school and his teacher gave him a C saying, no, that's not right, that can't ever happen. So he spent the next couple decades of his life petitioning state legislatures in those states where they hadn't yet reviewed the amendment saying, please approve this thing and they did it. And it's yeah. now a yeah. part of the Constitution of the United States. So, <laughs> you know, we, we might think that the political climate's not there to get a constitutional amendment ratified. Sometimes we have to make the political climate. Yeah. You know, the political climate is us. It's what we make it. So I, I think that things like your article do a huge service in promoting the way the Constitution ought to be. So thank you for writing that, Zach. We appreciate it. Thank you for having yeah. me on. Yeah, I, I mean, especially because the thrust of a repeal of the 17th Amendment would be giving state legislatures more of their power back. It would seem to be an easy argument to make for state legislators. So hopefully they... Yeah. Well, and it's... I think it is very striking that, you know, it's been about 30 years at this point, I think, since the last amendment was ratified. And then it was another two decades prior to that before the, you know, the previous one had been, but we used to actually ratify amendments at a pretty decent clip for a long time. There. Yeah. And if you take yeah. the first 10, if you take the first 10 as a group, there were, and then the next 17, there's been 18. Yeah, exclude the first 10, because that's not really fair if you average those. Yeah. So mm-hmm. yeah, but it's take the ones after that. Years. About once every 19 years on average. So we're definitely overdue. Yeah. Wow. So and, and they used to be things that weren't quite as substantial of changes either. You know, they, they were either obvious flaws that were noticed about ways of doing things, not just changes in preferences. Like, you know, take a look at 11th and 12th amendments, for instance, both kind mm-hmm. of structural procedural things. Uh, Civil War amendments are obviously big, but a lot of them are just, you know, they they don't hit up the core structure of the Constitution. Well, thanks for being on the show, Zach. We really appreciate it. You know, you're, you're continue to fight the good fight for liberty. I know that you'll do that in Arizona in the, in your fight for families. So we really appreciate Zach. Go ahead and read his article. Again, that article is called Federalism, the Founding and the Folly of the 17th Amendment. It's on LexRex.org. Go ahead and give that a read. Thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Thanks Thank you, here. Zach. Oh, gonna... before we go into this one, David, David, mm-hmm. I actually have something that I want you to do. So... Okay. I'm going to send this over in the chat. Just pull it up, and then you, you can see what it is. Uh-huh. Do you want me to read this? I do. Okay. Who Wants to Marry a Founding Father by Doug Linder, copyright 2000. 
1787 in Philadelphia, 55 founding fathers attended a convention that resulted in the drafting of the Constitution of the United States. Now, through the wonders of the internet, you can be transported back to that place and time and marry one of the men who helped shape our country's institutions and most basic laws. They're all waiting for you. What do you say? And then in parentheses, I promise you that none have ever had restraining orders issued against them. And we're going to put this up on our podcast page as well, after the podcast Facebook page after this episode airs, so that you too can take the quiz to determine which founding father you are most suited for. Okay, well, it gives you two options at the beginning. One says, yes, take me to Philadelphia. I want to marry a founding father. The other says, I'd rather marry a founding mother, and I'm going to click on that one. Ah, rejecting the premise of the quiz, I see. Yes, and then it's a, when you do click on that, it says, sorry, the 55 delegates to the Constitutional Convention were all guys. And if you think they're spouses, women such as Martha Washington or Dolly Madison would want to marry you, you're kidding yourself. And then I have, Too again, true. two options. Too true. Two options. If I can't marry a founding mother, I want to leave, or I'm willing to marry a founding father instead. Let's see what happens if I click on the one about wanting to leave. No, no, you got to click uh, on the uh, other one, David. I want you to the, take the quiz. It takes me back to the homepage of the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Well, press the press the back button on your computer. Okay. Well, I've, I've, thank you for walking me through that. I've, I've never <laughs> never pressed a back button before, but at your absolute insistence, I will agree in this hypothetical to consider the founding father. Okay, so anyway, it says, so you want to marry a founding father. Let's narrow, start narrowing the field. Would you like your new husband to be from the North, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey? I don't think you need to read the Northern states. I'm or pretty from sure the South, including, including the Mid-Atlantic region, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware. In case you're wondering why only 12 okay, states are listed, again. Rhode Island sent no delegates to the convention. So you can't marry somebody from Rhode Island. Yeah, that's that's fine. There's only like two people there. I'm from the north. I'll click on northerner. A northerner it will be. Next, do you want your new husband to be over 40 or under 40? And the options are, I like mature men, match me with founding father who's over 40 years old, or I like my father. Ah, that's a tough one. Well, I think in this little hypothetical, the only reason I can imagine I'm doing this is to, you know, gold dig. So I'll pick an older man <laughs> hoping that he'll die sooner and leave me all his money. So oh, that's horrible. You shouldn't want our founding fathers <laughs> to die sooner. Well, they all did, though. A mature northerner it will be. <laughs> that's true. None of, them, none of them are around today. So how do you feel about lawyers? Would you marry someone who has been a lawyer at some point in his career? And the options are, heck no, I can't stand lawyers, or I don't have anything against lawyers. Oh, and, answer carefully, knowing who your boss is. Yeah, and that's exactly why I'm saying I can't stand lawyers. <laughs> oh, well... <laughs> I don't. As we'll I, see if folks next week enjoy their new host. I would not. I would not marry you. I just want that on the record. Yeah, I know that, but it's <laughs> lawyers. And, I don't have any inkling. That was nothing in this podcast constitutes sexual harassment. <laughs> All right, um, no lawyers then, but you're eliminating some great guys. Let's start looking at our crop. Yeah, that's like more than half of them. Yeah, here's you've the just first... thrown out like the majority of founding fathers, David. Well, how do you know I'm not actually? Was Ben Franklin at the convention? I don't think he was, was he? He was, yes. Oh, he was? Okay. I was. He I was, was the oldest member. So. I was trying to remember when he um, would have been in Paris, but I guess that was... Only, no, Jefferson yeah. would have been in Paris at the time. Okay. He was currently... Fair enough. Yeah. So anyway, you know, I, I decided about midway through this that I guess I'm just going to angle for Ben Franklin, so... Anyway. Fair enough. Yeah, he was very, very wealthy. So I think he and, and John Hancock were probably the two wealthiest Americans at the time. So Let's start looking at our crop of founders. Here's the first candidate. He's wealthy and elitist, complains a lot. According to one delegate, 
quote, he objected to everything he did not propose, end quote, and will later become vice president. One other interesting fact, what could be your new husband's name will enter the dictionary as a word for the creation of oddly shaped, oh, so it's Jerry. Oh boy, they, they, that's a real yeah. giveaway right there. Yeah, so it's Jerry. Creation of oddly shaped electoral districts designed to favor a particular candidate. In his case, him, of course. So that's You're going to marry it? Eldridge Jerry? I was going to say it was, it was Eldridge or Elric. I couldn't remember which, but he has a Eldridge. weird first name. I'm pretty sure it's Eldridge. Um, okay, so the options are, I hate whiners even if they are rich, or I'm not fussy if they've got money, but I'm going to say I hate whiners even if they're rich. Good move. Well, then, how about a guy that likes to take chances? Say, a land speculator. He's a former member of the uh, excuse me, Continental Congress, something of a stud, <laughs> nine children. That seems crude. That's quite a few. <laughs> and a moderate nationalist when it comes to politics. That doesn't sound like Ben Franklin to me, so I'm going to say too big of a risk for me. Maybe you prefer an orphan. You're not, don't try to game this for Ben Franklin, David. You're supposed I, to answer I already, this I honestly. Already, I already told you that's what I was doing. It's yeah, but like you that. shouldn't be doing that. I shouldn't be doing this at all. This is You're ridiculous. not taking it right. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Maybe You're not taking the test right, David. Maybe you prefer an orphan reared by a rich uncle who is one of the first people to call for independence. He's quiet and unassuming, an opponent of capital punishment, and a, a promoter of the arts. Sound too good to pass up? That sounds sort of like Ben Franklin. I can't remember whether he was an orphan. Really quiet and unassuming? Well, not that part, but opposing capital punishment. I think it's probably George Clymer would be my guess. I'm not sure I even know who that is. but Well, they just gave a description. He's, he's from Pennsylvania. So. All right. Well, yeah, and Franklin, although famously associated with Philadelphia, was born in Boston. Anyway, I, I, I think said, he was a delegate from Pennsylvania at the yeah. convention. I said no to that one. How old is too old? Can you handle 81 in a case of gout? He's the oldest of the founding fathers, but one of the wisest and wittiest. I think, th I think this <laughs> Here might you go. be my man. <laughs> in his time, the son of a soap and candle maker was energetic, even electric. Okay, yeah, just giving it away. Inventive and quite a ladies' man. He's known as a strong egalitarian and as an early opponent of slavery. I'm going to say this one's a keeper, and it's <laughs> uh, congratulations, Franklin. You are the new Mrs. Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania. Congratulations, uh, David. <laughs> hope you like the looks of your new husband. And then actually, you know, all things considered, it's not the worst portrait of Ben Franklin. It was before he really sort of started to let himself go. Quite yeah, this is a few decades old yeah. at, at, if you're trying to do this right at the Constitutional Convention. <laughs> anyway. I, this was a very stupid and pointless exercise, and I'm glad it's over. <laughs> we'll put this up on the podcast page. That's on Facebook. It's the Lex Rex Institute podcast. Any ladies on that page, please take that quiz. Men as well. You know, it still might be fun. But I think this is pretty clearly geared toward the ladies more well, so it, than men. Well, it did address me as Mrs. at the end, and that is not how I refer to myself. All right. Well, with that fascinating matrimonial tour of the founding out of the way, I guess... Um, it's fun, folks. Okay. <laughs> I, we, have, we, we have no affiliation with whoever the heck put this out. I don't really even know who this guy is. So I have no reason to promote this other than I just thought it was kind of fun. And I right. thought it would be amusing to have David take that. On okay. Air, so. Anyway, but you, got, you didn't like the way I took it. And so anyway. No, you should, you're not supposed to game it. it. Folks, if you take it, please... Just click on the options that are actually your preferences because you okay, want to well, see which founding some, father you'll get. Some of them were just broadcasting who it was, like Jerry. And frankly, that, you know, Ben yeah, Franklin, that's, too. Yeah, that's a fair point. They make yeah. it difficult not to game it. Yeah. Anyway. I'm just yeah. mad about your answer on the lawyer's question. Well, I, you know, we can talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> 
can sort through some of our working issues, our, our uh, professional conflict. Anyway, so on to the, the next item on our agenda, which I'm not entirely sure how you're supposed to pronounce this name. I'm going to approximate it as Denezpi, but the case is Denezpi. As close as I'm going to get. So Yeah, D-E-N-E-Z-P-I. Denezpi of the United States. It's a case that, you know, what's becoming sort of a theme, I guess, for our organization in general. It's another case that involves... Supreme Court case, by the way. Just This opinion just recently came out. I think it came out on Monday, if I'm not mistaken. Last Monday, when this comes out. Yeah. So what would that S- have been? Monday there, the, right. the 14th or 13th? I think 13th. Yeah. Some, somewhere around there. Anyway, it's another case that involves the rights of Indian tribal law versus federal law. Like I said, you know, we, we, for whatever reason, this has cropped up quite a bit in our materials. But in this case, the defense or the, you know, the, the petitioner, that's the word I'm looking for, petitioner, Denesby, is a Navajo, I believe, and was accused of committing crimes on a Ute reservation against a member of the Ute Nation. And he was prosecuted twice. Once for a violation of the Ute law. Was that in was that in state court or was that in no? Well, Indian it was court. It was through the what is it called the the Court of Indian Affairs? Is that the the name? The, yeah, yeah. The the, so, the CFR Indian courts. Right. Okay. So which are which are federally organized? Yes. And yeah, that's created by Act of Congress. Do, who who appoints the judges for that? Do you know? It's the Department of the Interior. Okay, so executive points yeah. the judges for that. Yeah, but, certainly looks like debatably that mm-hmm. is a federal court. Yeah, and, and that's we'll sort get into of that what was argued here. Yeah, we'll get into that yeah. in a minute. So through the Court of Indian Affairs, which used to, as I understand it, used to handle prosecutions for most, maybe all of the tribal law systems in the country and that has steadily diminished down to just a handful more of the Indian tribes are also handling their own prosecution apparently than used to be the case. Really? So more of these have been heard by actual tribal courts? Apparently an increasing number, at least that's what the syllabus on the, on the case. Well, that's a very positive development. I think that's, I I think that, you know, by Lex Rex's principles, that's vastly preferable to basically a federal bureau doing it. Yeah. So back back to the facts. I, I wonder. Is, so I, I actually don't know a whole lot about Indian tribal law, but I, I wonder if if provisions of like the Bill of Rights would apply against Indian courts. That's you know, a, like jury of your peers for. Yeah, that's that's certainly a good question, but one definitely outside my pay grade. My yeah. my, I would vehemently argue that changes to those tribal systems, I think, should not be imposed from without, whether it's by state governments or federal governments. They should be organic changes from within that are made, you know, at the decision of those tribal sovereigns, whatever tribe it may be. Yeah, you know, that's broadly similar to the same principles that, you know, we would espouse with respect to state governments that, you know, wherever possible, if it can be resolved at the lower level, it should be. Right. Yeah. Right. But anyway, so back to the facts of the case, though. So Denez P. was tried first by by that court, the the Court of Indian Affairs. You know what they, the term of art, apparent or not term of art, but the jargon rather is is typically CFR court. You know, which sounds like C- Council on Foreign Relations court. Well, I think Code of Federal Regulations because it's an executive. Yeah, that's court. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, so it was tried 
through the you know through this court under the Department of the Interior, and then concurrently under just a regular federal district court in Colorado, if I remember. Yeah. So, so, so just to be clear about what happened, he was tried under this CFR court, and CFR court found him guilty of committing a crime. I think it was uh, aggravated assault or something like that. Doesn't really matter, but found him guilty of committing a crime, and then he was tried in a federal court under federal law for essentially or substantially the same offense. Yeah. Which that ought to, you know, those of you who are at all familiar with the Constitution, your ears Should ought to be ringing right now because that yep. sounds an awful lot like Double, double Jeopardy. Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Right? Not the Ashley Judd movie that we discussed a few weeks ago and that I think you hadn't seen, but the concepts from I the Constitution. Not. Yes, it's from the Fifth Amendment, which provides that no person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. Mm -hmm. So what that means basically is you cannot be tried twice for the same criminal charge. Yeah. And we talked a few weeks ago about how that has to, when we say same charge, we don't just mean under the same statutory section. We mean for the same action, you know, the same set of circumstances that gave rise to the first prosecution. Which is exactly what happened here, right? right? Because he committed an act, whether it was assault or whatever, he pled guilty to that, was found guilty, and then now he's being tried again for the same offense. So how is that not double jeopardy, right? That's sort of the question that ought to be prompted in your mind right now. Right. Well, the Supreme Court held that it was not double jeopardy, and we'll get into the reasons for that momentarily, but, you know. And you might think that's a surprising result. Yep. It's actually not. You'd be wrong. <laughs> so, th- yeah, this is. <laughs> so, at issue here in this case is a doctrine called separate sovereigns doctrine. I think they refer to it a different way in this case, but usually Dual I've heard sovereignty. it referred to as separate yeah. sovereigns. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think. Usually refer to it as separate sovereigns doctrine. Yeah. And basically, you know, that relates back to an issue we've talked about several times today already, and that's federalism. Right. So, as recently as 2019, the Supreme Court actually heard another case that dealt directly with the separate sovereigns doctrine. That was Gamble v. United States. In that case, they also upheld separate sovereigns doctrine. I think that one pertained to somebody who had been tried under state law. Uh, I'm going to forget all the details of it, but basically somebody who had been tried under state law and then I think acquitted in state court, and then the federal government tried to try him for that crime Again, same, substantially the same crime under federal law, and then convicted him under federal law. He challenged, said, that's a violation of my, my rights under the Double Jeopardy Clause, because you know basically the government shouldn't just be able to go around and pick which court they're going to try you in and keep trying it until they get a conviction. Supreme Court disagreed with him. They said, because the state and the federal government are separate sovereigns, you know that is, states have sovereignty, Federal government has sovereignty. Each of those entities independently has the right to try him for a crime, provided there are separate statutory sections in state law versus federal law. That's called separate sovereigns doctrine. It had been upheld pretty much every other time it had come before the court prior to 2019 and was upheld again as recently as 2019 in that Gamble v. U.S. case. So here in this Denesby case, is that how you were saying it, David? Yeah, we're going with Denesby. Okay, well, in this Denesby case, issue's a little bit distinct for two reasons. First, it's an Indian tribe rather than a state that had tried him the first time. And secondly, it's an Indian tribe 
that does not have an Indian court system. Yeah. That uses ostensibly, according to the petitioners in this case, a legal system which is just an extension of the federal courts, of the federal legal system. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's the issue when the court hears it. Two issues. Does separate sovereigns doctrine work the same way for Indian tribes as it does for states? And second question, is this CFR court an Indian court? Is it a separate sovereign? Or does it represent the powers of a separate sovereign? Or is it just an arm of the federal government? Right. And, you know, I may be jumping the gun here a bit, but that question in particular, I think, that question of, you know, does this Court of Indian Affairs really represent validly the sovereignty of the, in this case, the Ute Nation? Yeah. Does yeah, so that, the first question is yeah. really easy. The, the court can dispose of that one very quickly. Yeah, Indian tribes are the same as states in, in with respect to whether or not they are separate sovereigns. Yeah. So then the question is only that leftover one of, well, is this court actually a valid representation of that state's or of that Indian tribe's sovereignty? Right. And so the opinion of the court, which I think was... It's a much harder question, just... So you're aware, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the decision in this case was a 6-3 vote where the dissent, you know, you know, so basically the block holding that the Court of Indian Affairs does not validly represent the tribe was Neil Gorsuch. That, that was, they, they lost, by the way. That was right. yeah. the minority. The, this opinion. is the minority, the minority vote was Neil Gorsuch, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan. And not often a group that you see together. No, but there there have oddly been a few recently where that was yeah. the, roughly that. Yeah, quite anyway, a few. Was the, was yeah. the grouping. So, but... Yeah, particularly, I, Gorsuch has been at odds with Justice Barrett on quite a few of these yeah. cases recently. I saw a headline about that that I flagged for myself to read, and I don't think I ever got around to that, but... It was, it, it's yeah. I read one of them. I think it's largely sensational. You know, it, there's, as they there's tend not to be. like a, there's not a feud going on between Justice Barrett <laughs> and Justice Gorsuch where where the conservatives are saying we like Justice Barrett better. That's not what's going on. No, but it it could <laughs> it could in theory speak to underlying differences in you know their interpretive philosophy. But yeah, well, and, and it's I think it's worth noting, Justice Gorsuch after Justice Breyer leaves, Justice Gorsuch will be the only justice on the court. From the West. Yeah. Every other justice on the court is from a state that is on the Atlantic coast. Yeah. Well, where are all the Indian reservations? Are they on the Atlantic coast? Not for the most part. <laughs> no, they're on the West. Yeah. So it's just just by virtue of his day-to-day experience, by virtue of his experience as a judge on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, yeah. he's going to have a very different view of affairs relating to the Indian tribes than people who are, frankly, largely isolated from that by virtue yeah. of their experience. Anyway, so as I was saying, though, he, he wrote the dissent for this case. And, you know, a huge element of it comes down to basically his, his contention is that this Court of Indian Affairs isn't properly representative of the sovereignty of the tribes, that it's basically just an appendage of the federal government organized under the Department of the Interior. And thus, it's not actually two separate sovereigns prosecuting in this case. That's his take on it. Yeah. I was curious. And I'm actually, if you, have you know, generally I agree with Justice Gorsuch on this stuff. I'm now, I, I've not read every word of his dissent in this, but that strikes me as incorrect. Mm-hmm. Because even though 
the CFR courts are organized pursuant to congressional authority, an Indian tribe still has to make the decision whether or not they're going to have their own tribal court system or they're going to use the CFR courts. Mm-hmm. So by choosing to use the CFR courts, that is a valid exercise of tribal sovereignty. Yeah. You know, if, if California said, we don't want to have any courts in California, we only want to use Nevada courts, would you, would you say that Nevada courts are purely an extension of Nevada's sovereignty? No, that'd be an extension of California's sovereignty as well. I'm not sure that would be permissible under the Constitution, <laughs> sort of limited metaphor, only take it as far as it can go. But, yeah, but you, know, seems like you can see the issues. rationale behind that. Yeah. If, if the sovereign authority in a particular jurisdiction chooses to administer their laws through a particular judicial body, that is an exercise of their sovereignty. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, again, granted, I have very limited exposure to these sorts of issues and limited expertise, but strikes me as sort of, a you know, an option whereby the tribal government could basically just make use of someone else's prosecutorial power. Yeah. In order to, to enforce their own law. And, you know, yeah. the, 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 the question of separate sovereigns in general Yes. Is, I think, and, a and that's, issue. I was going to move there next. Yeah. Because I, and I, and I think that, though I disagree with Justice Gorsuch's reasoning with respect to whether or not the gamble precedent mm-hmm. extends to this case. So that is whether or not separate sovereigns doctrine, as it has been conceived by the court, ought to apply here. I don't agree with his reasoning on that. I think his real motivation, and I don't, you know, you never want to be too... You don't want to guess about people's motivation. Well, he, I, I think, you know, based he, on what Neil you know, Gorsuch has written in the mm-hmm. past and based on his words actually in the dissent itself. Right. I think his real motivation for ruling the way that he did or deciding the way that he did, rather, is that I think he thinks separate sovereigns doctrine is inherently unjust and a violation of the double jeopardy clause of the Fifth Amendment. Yeah. And, you know, he put it in his dissent that he thinks that the separate sovereigns or, you know, I, again, I think as it, as it was expressed in Barrett's opinion was dual sovereignty, but I think Gorsuch might have reverted to saying separate sovereigns. Anyway, that he thinks that that doctrine is itself not properly constitutional. And right, you know, and I would I would agree with him on that. Now, mm-hmm. I think that perhaps a more responsible opinion would have exclusively stressed that aspect rather than trying to make sort of a you know I don't want to be too critical here, but sort of a specious argument about how. CFR courts are actually an arm of the federal government. You know, I, I could see the argument there. I'm not convinced by it. Yeah. And it's, you know, if he was convinced by it, that's fine. You know, reasonable minds can differ on that. And he's certainly much better legal expert than I am, knows a lot more about this than I do, and has a great deal more experience on it than I do. Well, we, we'd hope so, so for you the know, good of the country that... <laughs> right. <laughs> that podcasters sure, yeah, are Yeah, I would hope so. That podcasters and, you know, granted, practicing attorneys, but... You know, it's funnier to say podcasters, but podcasters are not greater experts on the law. Than yeah, internet board. celebrities. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, all that to say, I do disagree with that aspect of the opinion. But ultimately, yeah, no, I do agree that the separate sovereigns doctrine is not a proper application yeah. of the double jeopardy clause of the Constitution. Yeah. And, you know, you and I have talked about this, maybe not on the air, but at least in, you know, normal conversation about your idea of how the the double jeopardy clause ought to apply and your 
as I understood it, and as I think you expressed it, basically, you think that any concrete set of circumstances, you know, what you did should only result yeah. in one prosecution. Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I don't think, you know, I think other people in rejecting, I'm not sure how Justice Gorsuch did this. Again, I have not had a chance to read all of the dissent. Yeah. But I, I, many people who object to the separate sovereigns doctrine would do so on the grounds of the supremacy clause, saying that basically a federal suit brought against somebody out of Trump. I, I don't think that's correct. I think mm-hmm. it's basically first come, first serve on this. Because of the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution, which requires other states to respect effectively the laws of the rest of the states, Mm -hmm. and because of the privileges and immunities clause of the 14th Amendment, which says that privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States cannot be denied by states to those same people, I think the interaction of those two clauses would mean that once somebody's tried once in a court of the law, whether it's federal or state, they cannot be prosecuted for the same transaction or occurrence. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's how I would look at it. You know, that's sort of my simple, off-the-cuff way of summarizing it. Yeah. Anyway, we're hoping to keep this one to a, a more reasonable runtime. So with that, we're going to go in now into our final segment. This is our sort of hot takes review from online. What are we calling it this week? Yeah, it's got a different name every week thus far. Maybe at some point we'll settle on a final one, but in this time, this will call for some explanation and I'm not proud of this one necessarily, but, and you know, I'm going to say this, you're going to hear it a certain way and it's not exactly the way you hear it. I'll explain. We're calling it the fiery furnaces. Okay. Furnaces, not just Uh the fiery furnace. That's partly in reference to the biblical Were you proud of the other ones? Because I don't think this is substantially worse. (laughs) No, but... It's not the Fiery Furnace, it's the Fiery Furnaces, because that was also the name of a really awful band from like the mid-2000s that I'm guessing you've never heard of, but that you would certainly hate. I have hate. not. I hate them. Okay. I think you would hate them too. <laughs> if you really like to okay. irritate well, yourself at some point, you can look up the Fiery Furnaces. I probably won't remember to do that. <laughs> the song <laughs> Blueberry Boat, for instance, terrible, terrible, terrible music. Anyway, they were briefly popular with, uh, you know, the hipster crowd. But anyway... This may be a sign, too, that I'm running out of the creative juices to come up with new names because that one is not exactly inspired. But anyway, let's, well, let's get right into it. Hey, so maybe we can start getting recommendations from the audience. Well, we've, we've tried crowdsourcing a bit, and that's the source of the one that I think you hated the most, which was Hal La Pena's. Uh, yeah, but... that's fair. That's a fair point, David. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's just uh, dive right into it. And, you know, sort of speaking of, of federalism, Although you'll see why it's a misapplication. Let's take a look at this first one. I believe this is the only one from Twitter before you complain about it. I think this is the only one from Twitter. Good. Perfect. Okay. So Edge of Tomato says, This is why California needs to amend their state constitution to make their laws not subject to federal court review. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I tried to do my research here and I tried to look up what is he referring to I tried to find that out I'm fairly sure based on what the current state of that Twitter account is that he at some point deactivated his account and someone else took it over and this is just a a relic of a previous user under that name Uh because I could not find any reference to this I tried searching for that name and then you know looking for the word California nothing came up just you know, just to respond to this, I guess I can't do it in whatever context it originally occurred, but speaking generally, federal courts 
do defer to state courts as the interpreters of state law. Mm -hmm. A federal court will almost never, in fact, yeah, I think I could probably say never, a federal court will never position itself as the superior interpreter of state law. That falls to state courts. So federal courts don't review matters of state law. What federal courts review is matters of federal law. And as we know, as we just mentioned moments earlier, actually, our Constitution has a thing called the Supremacy Clause. Yep. Which says that federal laws are, when, when constitutionally enacted, constitutionally valid federal laws are supreme over state ones. Yeah. So if a federal law contradicts a state law, the federal one controls. Yep. You know what this was probably about, come to think of it? I bet it was about marijuana legislation. That's possible. That's certainly possible. Because there's there's currently a direct conflict there between California law and federal law. Quite, quite on, a few you know, states what's now, these days. You know, it's, it's a, an increasing number of states have regulated cannabis made illegal in various ways, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, you know, and that, that is what... But, but anyway, that's... So, so if, if something is unconstitutional pursuant to the federal constitution, if a state enactment violates the, the federal code, of course a federal court's going to review that. It's a federal matter. Yep. Uh, you know... But a federal court is never going to say, this law violates the California constitution in contravention of what this California court said when they said that it didn't violate the California constitution. They're going to defer to a California court on that. Yeah. They're going to review the federal issues. Right. I do, I do like the idea that this seems to imply, though, that if, just, if states had just had the forethought to write in their constitution that the federal government can't tell them what to do ever... Which I think you is can what, undo the supremacy clause. <laughs> I think I think that's what the upshot of what this guy actually wants is. I think he's. I think you're right that he's sort of confused about how he's expressing this. But I think that's what he was trying to sort of get at. Is like, well, we should. Yeah, just, how would that work? Just, you know, a federal constitution. Actually, no. So state constitutions would be our highest law. Yeah. Followed by the federal constitution, followed by federal laws, followed by state laws. Would that be how that works? That's a good question. We'd have to interview Edge because of he seems he seems to acknowledge here that that obviously if a federal court can hear a California law and it can review that law to be valid or invalid, clearly it's doing so pursuant either to the Constitution or to federal law. Yeah. So he seems to recognize that federal law is supreme over state law, but I guess state constitutions, in his view, are superior to the federal constitution. Yeah, it's a that's an interesting. I don't question. know that it's actually this fleshed out in his mind. <laughs> and I if, think uh, that his mind might be a mess of cobwebs. Yeah, if and that if he uh, might not actually have an idea of how this works, but if whatever. current or former <laughs> Twitter user at edge underscore of underscore tomato wants to get in contact with us and explain what he was thinking and tell us why we're dumb for not understanding it. We'd be more than happy to talk to you about that. Yeah, we'll make you a guest on our podcast, actually. Yeah. This is an interesting opinion. You generally don't see people who are zealous advocates of state sovereignty also yeah. being zealous advocates of California law. <laughs> that's Those just tend not to go hand in hand. I'm not going to get into why. but <laughs> yeah. And I would say overzealous advocates of both state sovereignty and California law. Yeah. Because obviously I, I'm an advocate for both of those things, so... Yeah, okay. <laughs> but, but anyway. not, neither of them anywhere near to that extent. All right, so that's number one. Let's move on. Some to California laws, I should say. Some of them, I think, are unconstitutional. Yeah. All right, let's go now to our final hot take for the evening. All right, so this is from Dread with two Ds, 22. Like Judge Dread. 
Like Judge Dredd, him. Yeah, I am the law. At a will reading where the deceased left everything to one of his two children, the disinherited child tried to argue that under the principle of equal protection, he was entitled to half of the estate. Um... <laughs> That's not right. That's again. This is one of those ones where it's so off base. Like that's that equal protection clause has nothing to do with that. In fact, equal protection clause is exactly well what would protect if anyone were to bring a challenge on this the right of somebody to dispose of their possessions yeah. equally to everybody else disposing of their possessions. So it does not. It so, does not mean that you everything which is a legal process must be dispensed or disposed of equally to all persons involved. That is. That is insane. You know, that, that would be to suggest that every contract must have the same terms. You know, you signed a contract with your employer, and that guy over there who works for Goldman Sachs as a, as a high-level executive also signed a contract with his employer. Therefore, they got to have the same terms in them. You know, that's not equal protection of the laws at all. That has nothing to do with that. So what you're telling me is that equal protection under the law does not necessarily mean equal outcomes. Is that what I? Is that what nothing I hear to you? do with that? Is that what nothing I hear to you do with. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, it, not not just that. It, I mean, certainly that, but it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> yeah. It means the laws apply equally. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly what this guy thought. Well, I, I say guy. I don't think it's specified man or woman in that anecdote. But I'm, I'm curious what he that person thought the law that they were sort of appealing to would be. Also, do people genuinely have will readings in real in real life, like in a murder mystery where you all that's show up at the lawyer's office and they read the will? I've never heard of that. That's an excellent I've question. I've never heard of that happening. I was about to say yes, but then I realized all the examples I can think of are from movies. So. Murder mysteries, probably. <laughs> well, a, a few other instances, like, you know, it's, it's sometimes a, a trope in a comedy where someone is expecting, you know. Sure, sure. You know, and then it gets subverted. But I've never heard of that happening. Yeah. I don't. You know, I can't Anybody think... that had an estate of any reasonable size is going to have it administered under a family trust anyway. Yeah, I can't think it's, of a single instance where I've actually heard of someone having if, a if reading they, of the if will. If it's not administered under a trust, then it's a will, and it's likely going to go to probate court. Yeah. That's... I don't I don't know. I don't know that this actually happened. I think this <laughs> might be made up. But you think people would do that? Just go on the internet and tell lies? No, certainly not. <laughs> Who would do that? Anyway. <laughs> All right. I guess that'll do it for us. Thank you for... For listening, we hope you'll listen again. You know, if you'd like to learn more about us or make a donation or get involved, you can visit our website at lexrex.org. That's L-E-X. That's right. We're taking more volunteers now. Yep. We've just we we hired a new volunteer services coordinator who is going to be putting people into action defending the Constitution of the United States. So if you're interested in volunteering, visit our website, lexrex.org. As always, we appreciate contributions. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's thanks for watching or thanks listening. not watching because there's no video <laughs> but thank you for listening to yeah. our podcast we hope you'll join us again next week you already said that david i let's did just, but it's let's fine. do the sign off now it's fine <laughs> <laughs> well did we get, like we really don't normally do the formal one but this has been a presentation of the lex rex institute good night everybody <laughs> good night <laughs>